Hey, it's Sarah. As the NFL's virtual offseason moves along, I continue to listen to the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny to stay up to date with NFL news. Last week, Mina and Bill Barnwell discussed the Patriots riding with Jared Stidham at quarterback. Mina even went back and watched some preseason tape. God bless her. This week, she welcomes former NFL front office exec Nate Tice for the first time. You can find the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Sarah Spain, and my dilemma is that because of technical failings and a major time crunch, the Jacobs Brothers did a great interview, but didn't do a dilemma or the Spanish Inquisition. So now it's become my dilemma. And the only way for me to solve my own dilemma is to say and promise that I'm definitely going to have these guys on again because they were fantastic. And next time I will make sure that they do a dilemma and the Spanish Inquisition. The commission has spoken. My guests this week are John and Bert Jacobs, the brothers who founded the Life is Good apparel company and website and the Life is Good Ping podcast. I'm sure you've seen the tease with that memorable message. I remember going way back to the early 2000s. I got one of those shirts and proudly wore it. But beyond the shirts and all the gear they sell, there's also a whole website full of articles and stories that help spread the message of positivity gratitude, and optimism, even in the face of tough trials and tragedies. There's a good vibe tribe full of people who want to spread good vibes and buy into the idea that the attitude that you bring to whatever you do is so key to how you receive what comes your way in life. If you've been struggling at all during this quarantine with mental health or just getting in a funk, there are some really great pieces on lifeisgood.com with tips for optimism in tough times and finding the good in adversity and figuring out how we can use this time in quarantine to kind of rejigger our life and and see where we are and sit with the habits that we've become used to and maybe think about the ones we'd like to change. I really love talking to these guys and, and how they went from being just two 20-something brothers living in a van to running a major company, how they yelled at each other in the office and still do sometimes like only brothers can and have to kind of explain to their employees that they're cool. They're just, you know, working through some things. The moment that they realized that phrase or idea, life is good, would sell. Why optimism as a choice and not as blind optimism is so important Talk about their life is good superpowers, their tips for finding positivity during this pandemic, and also why they believe that they don't consider themselves extraordinary at all. And the fact that they still found such great success is a good lesson for others. This was super fun. I wish we could have talked longer. I'm definitely going to have them back. The message they're spreading is always huge, but especially now. So I hope you guys enjoy it. That's what she said. So happy to be joined by the Jacobs Brothers of Life is Good Apparel Company and Website and the Life is Good Ping Podcast. John and Bert. So uh quickly, let's start with way back when, the childhood. Uh John, what were you guys like as a kid? What your parents do? Well, uh our dad worked in a machine shop. He was a World War II vet uh, that worked on radar equipment. And uh our mother really ran the circus at home. We had uh, there was six of us, so in a tiny house outside of Boston. So it was it was madness, but that was their primary roles. Six. Oof. Uh, Bert, what were you guys both like as kids? Uh, tough, sports, uh, creative. What, what kind of things were you into? Yeah. Well, I, I think our mom was a huge influence on getting us involved in art and music and everything related to sort of creative things and being expressive. Um, I think that was her kind of coping mechanism for all the chaos of a, of a household with eight people in one bathroom. And, uh, 
So, so yeah, we were pretty, uh, involved in any kind of theatrics we could get our hands on, including, um, sports became huge to us at a young age. Uh, yeah, first baseball and then basketball, football, soccer, you name it. So I know you guys got together in your early twenties. Did you both go off to college first and reconnect or was it, uh, let's skip off college and, and start, you know, a, a business? It's funny. We, we both separately considered going to art school and then, um, you know, we just didn't want to miss out on the traditional American kind of experience of college. And I don't know about you, Johnny, but I definitely visited an art school or two. And I felt like, you know, this should be this nonconformist environment. But then everybody was wearing black with face jewelry. And so uh, <laughs> I, I kind of felt like, I don't know, I just wanted, you know, that that experience. So both of us went to college, uh, finished, got our degrees and then, uh, yeah, and then started hawking T-shirts. Did either of you try to go into getting a job somewhere else or join at some sort of industry? Or was it post-college, let's, like, we missed each other, let's get back together and do something fun? I delivered pizza for, uh, yeah, a ski season. I'm pretty sure neither of us said the words, I missed you. Please let us, <laughs> let us, let us reunite. But right. we did do a, uh, we did do a really fun road trip. Uh, I was on exchange in California for my junior year of school. And, um, Bert came out from Vail, Colorado, where he was teaching some skiing. And we drove across country and took a good seven weeks to get across country. So we really reconnected after not spending that much time together during high school. We, we shot some hoops together, but, um, you know, that's the way it is when you're in high school. We were four years apart. But yeah, I think really- it was like, it's funny because I think it was like we were best friends. You know, we shared bunk beds. We grew up together. And I think our parents kind of, uh, you know, there were six kids, but you didn't talk about Ed and Ed or Alan separately. My parents just grouped <laughs> everybody into twos. So I said, where's right. Ed and Alan? Where's Bert and John? You know, <laughs> yeah. the same, right? So I think Johnny and I were like best buds. But then in high school, when I'm a senior and John's a freshman, you don't really say hi to each other in the hallway. You're like in different worlds. Yeah, John's dragging you down. You can't let him, you know, grab yeah, your style. You're exactly. a cool senior. Yeah. Or, or, probably- the, or the shadow <laughs> is so imposing. From yes. Yes. Uh, that's other. right. Yeah, you <laughs> could feel him creeping up behind you, ready to take all of your, your women and your spots on the sports team. Yeah, because um, yeah, women love tall, skinny freshmen who can guzzle a lot of milk. uh so john you do take this road trip and uh was that when you decided let's get together and sell t-shirts on the streets of boston we we had amazing adventures but yeah i mean in the last week or so of that trip as we we crossed back over the country we did start talking about what we're going to do and um started bouncing those ideas they were very vague at that stage but um off of each other and that led to the first T-shirts and getting out on the streets of Boston, et cetera. And to whom did you want to appeal? What were the designs and messages? Because we know later you land on this perfect idea, but before that, what were they? I'd say anybody with $12 we were trying to appeal to. <laughs> but they, they definitely skewed more toward like free spirits. Uh, there was a lot of funky artwork with kind of music-inspired, uh, cool patterns we got into sports too. We, we, we had a, a thing called homemade jam, which was like, we, we, we kind of thought, well, you have, 
you know, Nike and Air Jordan and all of these things, but like most people who play hoop are just playing pickup. So that's what homemade jam was about. So we would go to like, you know, small time tournaments and sell shirts there. Um, you know, we had like a very tiny audience of people that loved them, but we really didn't build a business with it. Right. So then you land on the message, life is good. And that shirt slogan sort of changes everything. John, how did, you know, counteracting bad news and negativity become a focus for you? Was it an aha moment or sort of a gradual thing? I would say gradual because as we, we did sell in college dorms, these designs that weren't particularly popular, but we were sleeping in the, our van and driving around college campuses all over the East Coast and knocking door to door in dorms. And one thing we did talk about repeatedly in those long road trips was how people seemed inundated with negative information. And and as, whether you're running through the dorms or you're on the street, you'd hear people talking about the latest disaster, fire, murder. And we, we were aware that these bad things happened, but it seemed out of balance. And we wanted to create something that helped people celebrate the good in their lives. Bert, were there other slogans that got passed by before you landed on Life is Good? Endless. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe like once a week we would have this eureka where we would go, this is it. You know? <laughs> and uh, one of them was Open Your Mind, which we still think it would be a great brand. And it's kind of part of Life is Good. So a lot of things that we tried to develop and didn't work ended up working. So open your mind is, you know, kind of, it says what it is like life is good and is about being open-minded and not judgmental, et cetera. And openness became one of the values of life is good. So a lot of things, you know, we, we talked about, you know, we talked all the time about brands that exist out there, like, like Nike. And we said, okay, you know, what is that about athletic prowess, you know, or they would say the goddess of victory or whatever. And then Ralph Lauren is about affluence. And, you know, these aren't necessarily what we're going after, but what's our, you know, what's our swoosh? What's our little pony? You know, that's kind of what we were talking about. And um, so so a lot of those things that didn't develop, you know, that might have been one slogan for a T-shirt but didn't develop into a brand actually ended up helping because they, they became part of Life is Good later. Right. They sort of form this ethos. So you go to this first fair and you sell like 45 shirts in less than an hour with the life is good on it. And you're like, okay, we got something here. And you go from that to now it's this, you know, hundred million dollar brand and you've got a website and a podcast and stuff everywhere. I remember having a life is good shirt back in my early twenties after it was in like in style magazine or something that Jennifer Aniston was wearing it. Like, do you, does that, does that ring a bell? Yes, it does. Like Jennifer Aniston, I think had one or something. And I was like, I I like that. Not Jennifer Aniston, but but there was definitely an in style magazine and the, the centerpiece of it was rollerblading. Well, that checks out. I was a big rollerblader too. Uh, that is so funny. I remember, and I remember I just loved the very simplicity of it. And it, and it spoke to an attitude that I've had my whole life is like, things are good. Everyone, you know, find optimism, find the positivity. Um, so it seems oh, no, so it, simple. It, it, like, it, 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 Sarah, John, who wrote the article? Oh, that's, uh, Jen Weed. Jen Weed. Okay, good buddy. Yes. Jen later became a good buddy. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy that you remember. Um, yeah, I remember, you know, wandering around Malibu and, and roller skating, rollerblading and going to the tide pools and stuff. And my, in my life is good tea. Um, awesome. we knew we liked you. And they sold them actually at the, um, Malibu Country Mart 
where they had the amazing stinky cheese and all the delicious foods, and they had them above the counter. I remember that, I was, was, part, that was part of our distribution strategy. Yeah, oh, yeah. Where the stinky cheese is. That's right, exactly. Uh, Telegio, I believe it was delicious. Um, so you go from that to this big company, and I'm curious, Bert, how you divvy up the work as brothers. I know that you are the chief executive optimist. John is the chief creative optimist. Are those actually different jobs, or is it just fun titles? Yeah, they're different. So, I mean, here's the the reality is that both of us are kind of better suited for creative roles. Um, but one of us had to, you know, kind of step into running the business more. I think we get pigeonholed that, that, that I'm the business guy and John's the creative guy. Both of us are much better at the creative side. And, uh, I think out of the two of us, maybe I was better suited to run the business side. Uh, but now we've kind of gotten over that and found, uh, that lots of people can operate much better than I did. You know, we are, we got by the way we did for a while. And so now we're both in like really good roles where, uh, John is the creative director for marketing and I'm the creative director for, uh, the graphics on the t-shirts. And so we're, we're in a better place now. About how many people work for you, Bert? There's about 200 is about, uh, oh, wow. yeah, about 200 full time. And then you know, most of the, for the wholesale business unit, most of the sales reps are independent. So that's probably another 40 or so. And then you have probably another 50, uh, that are, uh, part time, but, but yeah. 200 full time. John, my parents have, uh, had a law firm together since their early twenties. So now they've been married for, you know, 45 plus years and they still work together every single day. And I'm curious. I know it's not the same as being married, but you're working with your brother as a just out of college 20 something. And now years later, has the relationship changed significantly? Are there things you've had to sort of adjust to as I presume maybe someone's married or has kids or whatever? First of all, congrats to your parents. That, I know that, it's impressive. <laughs> that is, and, uh, I mean, yeah, we were, Bert and I were right on top of each other with every decision necessarily for the first 10, 15 years. And, uh, we were, you know, Bert mentioned the bunk beds, but pretty quickly we're sharing the van for five years and then we're sharing an apartment for another, I don't know, five or 10 years. Um, so I think it's healthy as the business evolves. Mm-hmm that you bring in, you know, people that are smarter than you at different areas. And we, we recognized it was easy to recognize early that we weren't great at ops or uh, finance or IT because we don't have strength in those areas. Um, and then more recently, we have a tremendous, a great president and just a really saw her name's Lisa Tanzer and this great leadership team. It's been so healthy for Bert and I to, you know, have a little more space to work and, and kind of team up on things that we're really excited about, but not have to be in each other's grill for like every decision. Right, and right. Uh, instead of 40 points of friction every day, you've got <laughs> like, you know, a couple of meetings or a phone call. And I, it was funny, like early years, we used to wig out our employees because we'd be screaming at each other like brothers. And then like five minutes later, hey, you want to grab a slice? Like, yeah. <laughs> and they couldn't that understand the right. dynamic. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also like the scrutiny, like remember the, the ceiling is the limit thing? So like, yeah. you know, early with the business, you know, we'd be in the same room. You'd be working like around the clock. So you'd be tired and hungry and, you know, 
ready to tear each other's head off anyway. But then we'd have one important account. I'm on the phone with one important account, and I'm trying to sell them on the idea that life is good isn't, you know, just uh, something that will come and go like most T-shirts and that it's got legs and all that. And John is physically hovering over the phone. <laughs> and, and I said, I meant to say the sky's the limit. And I said the ceiling is the limit. <laughs> and when I said it, he just like flipped out. And I mean, I'm in the middle of the phone call and he's pointing and laughing. And, you know, that, kind right. shit, that, that kind of shit happened every day. Yeah. I mean, Michael, Michael Jordan once said the ceiling is the roof. So I think, you know, we've all, we've all made similar mistakes, even the greatest <laughs> exactly, of all time. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Uh, Bert, I'm, I'm wondering, like you said, life is good is, is a long term thing. It's not a flash in the pan. How much of your early on messaging and desire to, to kind of promote this idea of positivity and optimism was based on research and, and study? And how much was it just a simple phrase that later led to you wanting to expand and understand those ideas? You know, 98% the latter. I mean, I think we were, uh, fortunate because, um, although there were some challenges growing up, we had this powerful influence of our mom, Joan, and, uh, she really taught us at an early age that optimism is a smart choice. And, um, and she showcased it all the time. And, um, so like we had the idea already. We had the kind of pride in bringing positive energy to the table, um, all the time growing up. So it was sort of part of who we were, but academically, we didn't have much of a clue about it. We just knew that was part of kind of who we were and how we were going to kind of cope with life and get through things. And that was, you know, something we'd become known for anyway, people that brought like positive energy to the table. Then, you know, it's interesting as our business starts to develop, the academic side really takes off. And all of this, uh, the whole field of positive psychology, which, um, you know, most say came out of Harvard, right in our hometown and all of these, uh, kind of leaders in positive psychology and all this great science starts backing up the idea that optimists live longer and their relationships better are better. And, you know, all of these different things that were just great fuel for our fire. But I, I can't say we knew any of that going, going into it, really. Right. Uh, John, are you guys now familiar with the idea of neuroplasticity? I've talked about this. Somehow I've turned it into a common thread throughout my podcast, even though they're with people from all different backgrounds. But this whole idea that our brains can actually change and we create shortcuts and paths to things if we use it enough. So practicing gratitude then means your brain takes the shortcut towards gratitude instead of negativity. Um, that sort of mental health combination of, you know, you can actually change the way you operate, which is something that we didn't know for years. It's a really relatively new science. Um, is that something that you guys are familiar with? Because I feel like that is something you kind of tackle on your website. You have articles that are like, what if I can't just be naturally optimistic? You sort of talk about tricks of, of moving yourself into making it more natural. I'm glad you mentioned that article. Like it's, it's really cool to us to see our team own different viewpoints on optimism. Now, neuroplasticity, Bert could not spell it. I, could, <laughs> my, I know about as much or probably less than what you just said. Um, I, I know the basics and I've heard really bright people talk about how negative uh, thoughts or ideas are like stick like Velcro and positive things, unfortunately, are like Teflon. That's because of our fight or flight 
you know, DNA and all those years of just trying to survive. So we do have to work a little harder to make those positive thoughts stick. And I know some of it is genetic and some of it is our circumstances, but there's a big portion. I think they say 40% when they talk about either happiness or optimism that is uh, something you can you can actively choose. And I un- understand, again, that it's harder for some people, but we've seen it work it's so powerfully. Bert mentioned our mom a few times. She was a shining example, and she did not have things easy. But then later we get these stories from our customers who've been through virtual hell, and they find a way to find positives to build on. And it's extremely powerful. Yes, gratitude is very central to it. But optimism is is the number one thing for us, and we believe it more than anything. Yeah, I'm going to send think, some links to neuroplasticity because you will be jumping for joy with how much it reinforces everything on your website, everything that you guys preach about. And some people will only adopt it, myself being one of them, uh, when there's science behind it. It just like it sounds hippy dippy. And then you realize the science behind it and you're full in and it can really change a lot of people. Um, you were going to say, Bert. Well, just that, uh, you know, optimism isn't something that you just sort of turn on or turn off. And it's also not something that black and white people are born with the propensity for it or not. Um, everybody has some propensity for both optimism and pessimism. And the reality is we have an opportunity to practice these things. And just like when you practice foul shots, you get better at it. Most people do. You see somebody shoot, you know, 20 foul shots in a row and can every one of them. You could say, well, they're a good foul shooter. More likely, they've worked their ass off. And you don't think of optimism as that kind of thing, but it is. It's something that every day you have to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to practice. And after a while, you become better at it. And you're much more apt to, in a situation, say, let me, let me look at the glass half full here. And what you find is there are great, selfishly, there are tremendous benefits to it. And you start... Uh, you know, controlling your own destiny a little more. It's much more attractive to be uh, looking at the bright side. More, more people are drawn to that. So, you know, there's lots of science and the idea of neuroplasticity is fantastic. When you combine that with the practical application, it's, ve- it's undeniable that it's, a, yeah. that it's a smart choice. Well, that's something that you guys both seem to clarify and and is of importance to you that optimism is not blind positivity. It's an approach that still allows for tough times. It still allows for the knowledge that life isn't perfect, but it's an approach and an idea of, of, of a choice. And I think that's key because, um, blind positivity is, is, uh, can be dangerous. In fact, <laughs> you have to be aware, right? <laughs> it matters. Dangerous. And, uh, you know, it, it comes across as aloof or distance from real world. And right. frankly, it can piss people off and I don't blame them. So um, and if if someone ha- struggled to listen to a couple T-shirt guys or even maybe a scientist about it, what's really compelling to me is when you hear those people that and, and we all know people that have been through really tough things in their life and somehow they they gain this elevated sense of gratitude mm-hmm. and ability to view the world like just more clarity on what's most important. And that's really inspiring to us. And that's what those people that started selling, you know, sending their stories to us, they're the ones who really helped us find the deeper purpose of our, of our company. 
Yeah. Um, you guys have life is good superpowers. Bert, can you uh, run me through them quick and how you decide to uh, spread that those can be employed for good? Sure. No problem. They're, they're all timeless values. So authenticity, compassion, creativity, courage, fun, gratitude, humor. Uh, where am I? H, uh, love uh, and simplicity. So they, they are all, just like life is good, none of them are things. Oh, I think I missed openness, which we touched on earlier. So none of those values are things that we invented, just like we didn't invent life is good. It existed. You know, we just happened to trademark it before anybody else. <laughs> but what those values, um, what our customers taught us, as John alluded to through the years, is that once you make that conscious choice, we like to use the word rational optimism. So rational optimism as opposed to, um, you know, the, the fluffy idea that uh, that being optimistic means you're clueless and that you don't see the obstacles in the world. That's not us and that's not what we preach, right? So, so once you make a decision that there's going to be difficult things in the world, there's going to be problems, there's going to be challenges, life isn't easy, life isn't perfect, but the best way to overcome it is positive energy and being an optimist. That's what we call rational optimism. And once you make a decision to be a rational optimist, you are far more likely to feel and express gratitude, to simplify your life and focus on the good things in it, to make courageous choices in your life, to be authentically who you are, uh, to be more compassionate and understanding to others, to look at somebody instead of saying, what's wrong with her? Instead, you might say, I wonder what happened to her. And, and, yeah. and those, 100%. those type of things, really, the, those type of things were, were taught to us through countless hundreds and even thousands of letters and emails from ordinary people like us who were trying and kind of fighting the fight of life. And we, we, John and I started circling things that they wrote or said. And pretty soon we said, my God, how many times do they mention gratitude in here? Let's make that one of our values. And, um, you know, and so many uh, people advised us, you can't have more than three values. <laughs> I don't know, what's the book on any of this? We have 10. They say it's too many. But on the other hand, we never run out of things to make a T-shirt about. That is so true. If I could add, yeah. I mean, simply not calling them values, calling them superpowers allows you seven extras. Yeah, that's, that's so rule. true. That's so true. And, superpowers and we, can do whatever they want. Sarah, we used to have this very lengthy mission in our first like five or six years. We changed it to something very simple to spread the power of optimism. And we still love that mission. But after going through 08, a lot of businesses struggled after 08. We did as well. We had to dig a little deeper into like what we stood for beyond that simple mission. And that led to, okay, what does optimism do for people? Why is this mission important? And it, as Bert, mention it, it enables us to access these most important tools we have for living a happy and fulfilling life. So these to us are the real superpowers, like unlike bullet speed or x-ray vision, these are accessible to all of us. And, and optimism is the thing that kind of gives us the key to all of them. I love that. Uh, a couple more because we're running out of time here, but I want to get to a couple more. Um, right now, currently, is a difficult time for a lot of people. Uh, Bert, do you have tips for accessing some of these ideas in a in a time that you know your schedule is off and and there's a lot of sadness and grief around you? 
Yes. I think one of the keys is a support system. So um, statistically, those who have a very clear support system of people who know you and love you, um, who you can trust, generally cope with any major or minor challenges in life five times better. So zeroing in on the people who you feel that energy from, that you feel truly love you and care about you and not spending your limited resources on those that make you uh, feel insecure or uh, or weaker or you feel some judgment from. So that's number one. Just spend your time with the people that make you feel good and the people who you truly love and who you feel love you. The second one I would say is don't try to solve this whole thing. I mean, nobody on the planet has experienced a global pandemic. So if you happen to be the epidemiologist who's going to find the vaccine or whatever, great. For the 99.9999% of the rest of us, just take it a step at a time, one hour, one day, you know, at, at a time and just say, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way to have a good day today. I'm going to be productive. I'm going to find uh, some things to be happy about. And my, my third one is that what's emotional and mental is not limited, is not limited to emotional and mental. Physical activity every day of some kind is proven to release natural chemicals in your body that help you to uh, find the right energy to approach your day. So, you know, people can slip into this, you know, four days, five days, one month in a row without getting outside, without exercising, etc. Whatever it is for you, whether it's a walk around the block or it's push-ups in your basement or whatever it is, do something physical every day because all of a sudden those things that seemed overwhelming aren't overwhelming anymore. Yeah, it does. It clears your head and, and, and is, it has so many other benefits than just the physical. Um, Bert, you guys did a commencement for the 2020 grads. You had Michael Franti and the Avet brothers and all this stuff. What inspired you to, to give a sort of speech to the class and welcome them all to a sort of, to watch along? Well, Johnny and I started having a conversation about what a, what a bummer it was or is for these kids because we really enjoyed those days as most people did and, and being able to just kind of celebrate and be shoulder to shoulder and, you know, have a little party and think back on the whole thing together. And the fact that they were missing that, we just thought, Hey, maybe we can get some of our creative friends who are inspiring. And uh, we do believe that music and poetry and other art forms unite people like nothing else. So we thought, while John and I might not be the most talented, we can, we have lots of great friends. And so we just circled up some of them and it was really fun to uh, virtually get with the, the graduates for the, for the night. And uh, we did the best we could in an empty building, trying to, trying to get a smile going with a <laughs> looking at the iPhone. And Sarah, if I could add, like the some of our teammates started a support blog for grads just to kind of check in on them, and we were blown away by the responses, like the the resilient optimism in those posts from grads, and we we got so many of them talking about finding a way. Like I'm so grateful I get to spend this time with my grandma. I, I never would have had this, or. Our, our class is actually going to be more united than divided yeah. by this thing in the long run. Kids that are 20 
or 21, whatever, like finding the perspective of someone much further down the road was really impressive to us. So we wanted to have a good time, celebrate, and yeah, give them the chance to cut loose and, and enjoy the milestone despite these weird circumstances. One other thing that we talked about is that um, for whatever reason, like I think that so many people that do public speaking or that have a public persona are such extraordinary people. And the fact is that John and I are not uh, extraordinary <laughs> people. We're, we're very ordinary. And so I think that's part of our appeal. So for kids coming out of school, it's all pretty intimidating. For So for them to see some people that have obvious flaws and uh, are pretty simple, regular people who have been fortunate enough to have some success – we found that that motivates people. And we heard of that a lot from the students that it was uh, comforting to just see kind of regular, regular guys uh, who, who maybe have had some good luck in the world. Yeah, that's so true. I love some of the t-shirts you made for them, you know, class of 2020, most chill class ever. And they're, you know, doing their schoolwork with a, their dog at their feet in their pajamas. Very true. Um, uh, we're, we're running out of time and I have so much more I could talk to you guys about, but, um, I wanted to ask quickly, um, John about your life is good kids foundation. How did you decide to focus on that and send some, some of the proceeds to that? Well, we, we created it, uh, because early on, once we got over the hump and got a little momentum with life is good. If you're a human being with eyes and ears, like you notice that some kids don't have the kind of support and love that we got, especially from our mom, but really both parents. And, you know, we had challenges as kids, but we had a lot of love there. And the more you dig in, you realize that so many kids lives are challenged for the long haul because of things that happened to them at three, four, five years old. So we teamed up with a, a friend of ours who had his own nonprofit going at the time, and we kind of helped each other along the way and eventually together created the Life is Good Kids Foundation, and it's helping kids overcome poverty, violence, and illness. And we do it by working with child care providers in the fields the, the people that are in the trenches, the teachers, the counselors, healthcare workers that are working directly with kids, we need to help them to retain their own optimism, playfulness, joy, and they can transmit that to the kids. So th that was a very natural progression for us, and it's become extremely galvanizing for our team. We're constantly doing 10% of all our profits every year go to the Kids Foundation, and then we're also always doing events that, that benefit the foundation for the record, Sarah, I wanted to keep the money. <laughs> you seem like that kind of guy, Bert. I'm not going to lie. Uh, no, that's fantastic. And that totally is such a great through line for the things that you do. I mean, it's a t-shirt brand, but the website has tons of great information, especially right now for people who need a little kick in the butt and some positivity during this time. Um, and then your podcast is great. You've got, you know, Ringo Starr, uh, you know, some really incredible guests, Ali Raisman, who's, who's amazing. Katie Kirk. Are you guys going to have a new season of that coming up, Bert? I think we are, but you know, like most organizations out there, we're, we're talking about taking it a step at a time. Right. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've essentially got three business units, uh, e-commerce, a wholesale and a licensing business. And the wholesale business was half of our business. It's been decimated. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to kind of figure out what, you know, how to go forward. We'll survive and we're, we're, we're going to figure all that stuff out. But, uh, whether the podcast, the podcast will be back, whether it's 
next month or six months from now or two years from now. We don't know. The only good thing about it is the ping pong table just provides a guarantee of what, 12 feet of social distancing. So Uh, that's a start right there. (laughs) We we were fired up by the response, Sarah, uh, and we love doing it and we'll definitely be back. Um, It's just on pause right now, but thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, it's cool. Um, yeah, and we need we need your assistance because we really don't know what we're doing with that. So. <laughs> well, it did take a little longer to get this podcast rolling than I would have imagined from two guys that have a podcast, but I'm starting to get behind the scenes during this quarantine. You're realizing <laughs> how many people have uh, teams that help with those kind of things. Uh, yeah. Teams, aka wives during this time. Wives <laughs> are now the new teams. Um, well, I might have to have you guys back sometime in the future when the podcast returns or when you have something to promote because this was great and it's so in line with all the things I love to talk about on this podcast that are wholly, you know, unrelated to ESPN or sports, but are all about um, how to be happier and live our lives better. So um, I look forward to sending everybody to your website to read some of those stories and get the great gear. And uh, I thank you guys so much for joining me. Johnny, chime in. Well, I never been to <laughs> Yes. Three dog night. Well, my jam. I like the music. <laughs> the ladies are insane, man. Yeah, we might I have to cut the Mike cost too much. Yeah, I'm gonna have, I'll check with Disney Sarah. on whether we have the rights to that song. Might have to edit it out. <laughs> Sarah, thanks so much for putting so much positive energy out to people. Everyone yeah. needs it right now. And thanks for giving us the time to, to talk sure. with you today. Great to talk to you guys. I'm going to send you that research on neuroplasticity. It's going to blow your mind, pun intended. <laughs> thanks, you guys. Have, have a great day, Sarah. Keep spreading good vibes. Thanks. thanks. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, it's people who seem to be misappropriating messages about freedom and choice to the current pandemic. Now, I'm not going to get political. I'm just going to say, if you are someone that films a grocery store manager telling you that you have to wear a mask to go in and you say that they're and somehow offending your inalienable rights as a person to go into Gelson's or Ralph's and buy groceries, check yourself. If you're somebody who writes on a mask and then cuts a hole in it, my body, my choice, check yourself. If you're somebody who doesn't understand the difference between autonomy and freedom and doing right by the people around you and your community in a crazy, unprecedented time like this, check yourself. I don't even have to go any further than that. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I don't think people really understand that they're making a false choice between everything should be open and stay home. It's not that we're choosing to stay home knowing that we wish we could be out and the economy would be perfectly fine if we left. The whole point is if we don't stay home and we rush to get back, the economy will be set back even more. We just have to be patient. It is so American to just be bored with quarantine and then decide it's over. We don't get to decide when it's over. We have to keep listening to the experts. And this whole idea of our freedoms being stolen because you can't go down the street and buy a dress at Anthropology or get your nails done or drink champagne with somebody in a restaurant. We got to just be, you know, maybe not so American right now and, and be so obsessed with our individual rights. Think instead of the greater good. All right, wear a mask, you know? All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Don't be a moron is is really just the gist there. And listen to people who are experts in things like this. There, I fixed it. Did I? Probably not. That's okay. We'll do our best and we'll come back next week and do our best again. If you want to leave a dilemma for the commission to fix, you can always put it in the comments 
uh, on the That's What She Said podcast on iTunes. Rate, review, give me all the stars, give me all the love, and then tell me your dilemma, and maybe I'll solve it on a future podcast. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said. <laughs> 